On this episode of Eager to Know, stop telling yourself no in dark, scary times right in my neighborhood. We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McEachran, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Summerdale is a horror novel taking place in the Andersonville neighborhood of Chicago, where I just so happen to live. Once reading it, I was eager to speak with its author, David J. Collins. I was excited to discuss the power of words that formulate a story, characters, and themes. But in speaking with David, I also learned about the power of another set of words, the ones we tell ourselves, and how what we tell ourselves can hold us back or move us forward. David's story as an artist and author is about creativity, hard work, and sacrifice, but I also think it's about the impact of the story we all create in our mind about ourselves. Mr. McGreevy picked up his spoon and motioned for Steve to do the same. I love when your downstate accent sneaks back. It does from time to time. Steve blew on his spoon and bit. Wow! He fanned his mouth and tongue. Hot, but so good. You know, I don't even remember how I found Summerdale. I just looked up and there it was. I wasn't even looking for a new place to live. Sometimes this house finds the tenant, McGreevy said, setting down both mugs. Steve laughed. I mean, I've been in Andersonville quite a little bit. Reminds me of Mount Vernon, how friendly it is, but I've never noticed this street before. Strange, isn't it? Mr. McGreevy said, blowing on another thick spoonful. How some things fall apart and others just fall into place. That was author David J. Collins reading from his latest novel, which is a horror novel based right here at Andersonville titled Summerdale. So thank you so much for reading that. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here on your podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I read your book and I really liked it. And um, I have to tell you, the novel takes place right here in my neighborhood. So all of the places that are referenced in it are things right around me and places that I walk by all the time. And it's a little creepy (laughs) because the book is creepy in a good way, but it's very creepy that now I cannot walk down Wayne Avenue feeling comfortable anymore at night. That makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. How some things fall apart and how others just fall into place. That was the last line that you read. Um, I kind of feel like that is a a common pattern and theme that I see in this book. Um, there are aspects of your characters' lives that are following uh, that are falling apart, the chaos of their life, their relationships. But then there's the part of things falling into place, and there's the comfort that they feel and the mm. order of mm. being at the, uh, the Somerdale house and that you know Mr. McGreevy offers them. Can you tell me a little bit about that concept and uh, you know why you decided to? Make that a theme? Absolutely. Um, so the, the house itself, uh, which is at Somerdale and Wayne, is a place where you can go and feel completely safe. Mr. McGreevy is the landlord. He is the nicest man you've ever met. He always has time for you. He's always got a fresh pot of coffee. Um, and he just has time always to listen. He's like Jessica Fletcher meets Hannibal Lecter. Completely. That's kind of how I was thinking about that's it. That's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> exactly what I was envisioning. Um, and he really makes his tenants feel safe inside his house. And that's the point. 
is that uh, as the chapters go on, as there's more and more chaos developing, growing outside the house, the tenants individually really learn to retreat, to trust Mr. McGreevin more and more, and to feel safer and safer inside his house, which is really where the entire story is going. So you spend a lot of effort describing the home Hmm. and making it, describing its beauty in a Mm -hmm. lot of detail. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a house of horrors, but it's very beautiful. It it kind of reminded me of like The Shining, where in in terms of like the the idea that The Shining is this horror, but it takes place in this beautiful, amazing hotel. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that combination of you know, beauty combined with scary. Absolutely, uh, The Shining. That's a that's a great example. I loved the movie, um, and I grew up really admiring horror uh, for its social commentary. And one of the homages that I have throughout Summerdale really is to Hitchcock and the fact that some of his scariest movies were set in absolutely beautiful places, beautiful settings. I'm thinking of Vertigo. I'm thinking. You know, would the birds have been as scary if it wasn't in this picturesque coastal town of Bodega Bay in California? Um, it's that contrast, that stark contrast that I was really going for in looking for a house that represents um, America in a lot of ways. The Four Square is a truly American style of house. You can find them in um, city neighborhoods like Andersonville. You can find them in affluent suburbs and farm towns across the country. Um, you've seen a four square, you know what it looks like, and it fits in very well with its neighbors um, at Summerdale and Wayne. And uh, it's not a haunted house. It, it doesn't look, you know, the windows aren't broken. Um, it, it, it's a place where the tenants would feel very comfortable living. Um, and it changes. All the bedrooms are a little bit different um, to suit the tenants, and that's deliberate as well. So being a horror novel you are able to include supernatural mm-hmm. su- supernatural elements. And yes. I feel like you have this extra set of tools at your disposal as a writer where you can introduce things that don't adhere to reality. So Absolutely. can you, yeah, can you tell me about that? It was, it's an, it's a nice contrast. My first novel, Gay Bash, um, is literary fiction and there are rules and there was only so much I could do. Um, I wanted that story, which is about a reserve gay man who fights back against two attackers, to be rooted in reality. Uh, there was nothing metaphysical. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing imagined. There's no dream sequence. Um, it's fiction, but everything that happens in the story actually happens to the characters. Um, so I wanted to tell that kind of a story, but I found it very constricted. In Summerdale, although it's it's based in a, in a real neighborhood, and I think it's very relatable, there is so much more freedom, especially as I continue reaching toward the social commentary of the story of the, um, you know, using addiction as a metaphor for what the characters are going through, how they're experiencing life outside the house and also inside the house and how complicity um, moves through their storylines. That's not something that you could do with straight literary fiction. So I'm finding a lot of freedom uh, as I'm writing. And, and in some cases, I have to kind of winnow down w- which character is um, moving in, in what direction, because there are so many different directions you can go. I've also gotten feedback from readers, um, and horror readers, are they'll give you a lot of latitude. As long as um, there's there's consistent follow-through, and some of the rules are, are still in place as far as... Um, that it's still it's relatable. The characters, you know, are relatable, um, and that they can go 
you know, kind of with them to a point, um, and that the cliffhangers aren't aren't cheap. That you're still respecting the intelligence and the creativity of the reader. Uh, I think there's a lot of leeway with horror that isn't available in you know just regular literary fiction. So was writing horror was that something that you like? Are you a fan of horror? Would you or was that like a completely new thing that you kind of had to learn the rules? I after Gay Bash, I wasn't sure where I was going to go next, um, and. One of the things that I've just accepted as being a writer is you will receive stories, you receive characters, you receive dialogue, you receive other characters or lives being revealed to you. Um, why Mara showed up for me in Gaybash, I don't know. Why Dahlia showed up for me in Summerdale, I don't know. But I, the characters just assemble themselves in a certain way, in a certain order that made sense for me to put together into one story. So as I was writing this, I didn't intend to write a horror novel. It just kind of came to me that way. Um, certainly with Mr. McGreevy, there was no saying no. So um, it was not a character I wanted to upset. And because of that, I just opened myself to whatever these stories were and whatever it, it wound up becoming, which was a horror novel, or in this case, a horror trilogy. So when you're writing, do you how much of it is figured out ahead of time mm. and how much of it are you figuring out as you go? Like yeah. do you write an outline? Yeah. I mean, I know when I'm painting, I will do like an underpainting of, you know, of one color to sort of like structure out the whole sure. thing and then I'll fill it out. Do you do something similar? Yeah. I do an outline. I know how it's going to end. Um I believe in backstory and then I also believe in throwing all of that away because I'm receiving information and as much as I can plan and, and, you know, in, in writing, you're either kind of a plotter or a pantser. I'm more of a plotter. Um, but I've also learned that by not being that rigid, I can be open to receiving other characters and other stories. Lucas is a great example of that. Lucas was not in the original draft and he just showed up out of nowhere and he was just really persistent and he redshirted. And when I got away from being so rigid and saying, no, 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 maybe I'll use you in another book. I don't know why this character, this description, the addiction, the the um, manipulation of this character and everyone is, I don't know why you're showing up right now. You're not in my outline. Um, I relented. And now I can't imagine him not being in Summerdale and he'll be in all three. Um, by accepting Lucas is part of the story, enhancing the story. I also got to meet his mother, Nora, and Nora has her own story to tell. It will be a novella. Um, there is going to be more than just this trilogy um, coming from the storylines and the characters who are kind of assembling themselves here in Andersonville. She has a, a very short scene, but I think it, it really speaks to addiction and the um, you know, what, uh, what an addict will do to hurt family, to hurt friends, to disappear. Um, and Nora is going to, you know, have her own, will have her own novella and there will be other examples of stories and ad campaigns and other things that the characters are actually doing in their regular work outside the house that will be spinoffs from us from Summerdale. Okay. I can't wait. So you had mentioned like these characters come to you. Yes. And that makes complete sense to me. However, I do have a question for you. Yes. Before you were writing, I assume that you, were you receiving this sort of information 
and getting characters like that formulated as you were going throughout your life? And what did you do with that? Completely. Um, I was talking myself out of it. I was telling myself no. So you were sort of getting all this information and you were building up these ideas for characters Mm -hmm. and then you were saying, I'm not going... What exactly were you saying? Letting it go. Why bother? Ah, who am I? Why... Why try? I don't have an MFA. I'm not, you know, I don't have connections in publishing. Um, I told myself in this whole process, and this goes back years and years, um, that I wasn't good enough. I shouldn't even try. I'm not going to connect. These stories won't connect with anybody. Um, And the few things that I had written, like short stories, it's the same story as any artist getting rejected and getting rejected and accepting rejection as you know, well, that's it. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to try. So with Gay Bash, I decided to tell myself yes. And even though the proposals were rejected over and over, nobody wanted the story. Uh, I It took about six years to write, not because I was busy writing every single night, but because I was busy telling myself no. And finally, um, I put it together on my own, I did not have an editor. I did not have a publisher. I did not have an agent. None of nobody I reached out to was interested, and it was just coming to a point. Uh, so this was in about 2014 that indie authors were really getting more credibility in the marketplace. To say that you're self-published, uh, some of that stigma was fading away. So I felt confident that I had put together the very best story that I could, and I knew that once I hit publish on the Kindle. I couldn't take it back. It would be out there. It felt like coming out. And I had finally told myself, yes. When the story did begin connecting with readers, that gave me the confidence to continue saying yes to myself. So when I look back, the person who really told me no, even though it was rejected over and over again, was me. So once I let go of that and just wrote for myself and wrote stories that I believed in, I found a lot more inspiration coming my way and more characters and more storylines coming my way from that. Okay. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's like really, that's, that's a, a great background. Um, there are many people that are, well, want to do creative things, but specifically there are many people that want to write a book. Yeah. I hear it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you went through self-doubt. You went through telling yourself no. You went through actually doing the work and getting rejected. Mm-hmm. But here you are with two books. Um, why, why is it that you're, we're here talking when you have two published books? I know that, you know, something changed from a no to a yes, but what makes you different from all of these other people? Well, it's a couple of things. I I started believing something that I, I just told myself over and over. And that as an artist, the act of creation is our permission. We don't have to seek permission from anybody else to be creative. Um, when it comes to creativity, just don't take no for an answer. And okay, the traditional publishing world didn't want me. That's fine. They don't want a lot of people. So I turn to uh, eBooks occasionally um, as a way to see, you know, I'm noticing published authors are now on Kindle. Published authors are now, in some cases, uh, going independent because of the benefits of, of having that independence. Um, and it's also listening to the people who are paying attention to you. And one of the first things that I started hearing was that readers who were interested in this story don't like, um, eBooks, they read paperbacks. Okay. So I'm on my own here. I don't have, there's no blueprint on how to do this. So I learned how to make a paperback 
And then um, as I was getting more, doing more author readings, being at summer festivals, uh, some people said, I don't read, I listen. Okay. So how do you do an audiobook? And I learned how to do an audiobook. So looking back on that, instead of spending all the time trying to get an agent, trying to get a publisher, trying to get someone who can actually farm this stuff out, I've educated myself. And that gave me the confidence to move forward uh, with Summerdale, which is uh, certainly a creative investment, but it's also a financial investment. Um, so that is kind of how I'm just going to continue going on my own. I would love to um, see this on the stage. For example, I think both stories would actually translate very well, but a little bit of confidence uh, grows into more confidence as as you go. And that's why I went from the first novel, which was just a standalone, to really thinking longer term about a trilogy. Yeah, I think Summerdale could be like a Netflix series. Oh, that would be great. E- which each episode would be like a different character, at least how Summerdale is written now with like the four, the four chapters. Yeah. Um, so now I know you're going to be coming out with Summerdale 2, which is a continuation. Yes. So I don't know how that's going to flush itself out. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that I think you're very clever the way that you structured this because you have um, you have the opportunity to explore because the way that the the way the book is set up, you have the opportunity to explore all sorts of issues because your mm-hmm. characters can have all of these different challenges and issues that you want to probably process or figure out. But then it's also in a a situation, as we talked about, where it's supernatural. So you have these other options of things that you can do Mm. to express, explore in a really unique, creative way. And again, the way it's structured, at least you know, this first book, each chapter is a different tenant. Yes. So that's almost like Twilight Zone episodes that are all under like this umbrella. So I just think it's very clever because I think you've set yourself up for something that has like a lot of legs that you can keep going with. Thank you. I, um, you know, one thing I, I do have to say for Gay Bash and for Summerdale, I had great beta readers. I, I trusted some uh, you know, some friends and family who really gave me honest feedback. And with that feedback, they gave me some ideas for structuring the book completely differently. And as much as I appreciated this, I just believed in chapter by chapter, because I felt that even at the end, the reader would think, do these guys know each other? Are they going to meet? I, I wanted those questions. Whereas if you do kind of a consistent narrative, um, where the chapters are not broken up and dedicated to one tenant at a time, um, the questions wouldn't be quite as strong at the end. And and I wanted lots of questions of the reader to keep that interest going for the future. Yeah, I mean, I personally am a huge fan of um, any sort of, whether it's a movie or a book that has open questions. Mm-hmm. And because it leaves you to keep, it's because it stays with you. It stays with you. Yeah. Summerdale gets very dark. <laughs> As an artist and author, why did you decide to go to that place? I think we're there. I mean, I think we're we're that kind of fear and, you know, um, you know, just every day there's another story of of um, of beatings. And, you know, we're we're not good enough. We we're not we don't belong. There's just that that's so prevalent. I, I was as I was writing Gay Bash, I was hoping that there would be a point in my readings where I could say, you know, I began writing this 10 years ago and we're so much better now. And mm. I, I honestly can't say that. Mm. Um, when I read the main confrontation scene, um, which is a turning point in Gay Bash, which takes place at Halstead and Roscoe, I, 
I still tear up because it it feels very present, even though I wrote it about ten years ago. Um, so I I think we're at a point where we need to talk about these these dark places and in Somerdale the the darkness and this is a fictionalized autobiography about privilege. It's about complicity, um, and it's certainly about addiction and how it's affected my life, my relationships. Um, you know, and, and people that I've, who I've loved that I've, I've lost to addiction relationships that I've lost to addiction. Um, and a a way to, to kind of work through that is to work through these characters and storylines. Um, and, you know, also, and also bring a little bit of humor into it. So it's not Mm -hmm. completely dark. I think Mr. McGreevy can be very (laughs) funny, um, very charming. Um, but at the same time, there's there's definitely um there's definitely as beautiful as the house is there's definitely a dark cloud over it and everything that he does is very methodical nothing uh is spontaneous nothing is by chance with mr mcgreevy and there's little um things along the way like the the uh the messages that are written on the mugs and (laughs) There's a drought, and he's always outside with his flowers, and he is, he says things like "We're so happy." He always refers to himself in, in you know in the third person and also plural. "We're so happy you're here." So there's little hints along the way um, that hopefully will will kind of pique interest and also speak to that dark aspect of of the story and where it's going. Yeah, I love the messages on the mugs. It made me <laughs> it made me jealous that I wasn't a writer because I just thought that was so clever and cute that you were able to have that as a little tool for yourself. Thank you. So well done. You mentioned that some of Somerdale is a bit autobiographical mm-hmm. and there were some things that happened that I felt like the author was coming through. Mm. And I'm just going to throw out a a couple of them and just see if I'm right. Um, There was one part where Eric was talking about how he wanted to do something with his life. Like he was 35 years old and he um, wanted to make uh, an impact with his life. And I kind of felt like the way that you were structuring that and the way you were stating that was coming from a place of experience. And the other one was where Aaron, his reaction when he realized that someone else had a book published. And I'm like, I feel like uh, David J. Collins has experienced something (laughs) like this, just the way that it came through. Yeah, guilty, absolutely. those are really they kind of those those scenes kind of talk to each other in a sense very uh very very autobiographically um that feeling like i you know i'm one well, my case i'm 48 but you know for eric he's he's in his mid 30s it's about the time that i was starting to think you know i went to college i had you know i've had a career path what but what impact am i going to leave what legacy what uh, what will outlive me that i've done and to that point i couldn't say anything um i had wonderful support with my family wonderful support with friends um and again at that point even in my mid 30s i was the one telling myself no so i think like a lot of gay men we start looking at appearance um, which really feeds into Eric feeling like he's he's yep. not good enough. Mm-hmm. He's not, he, you know, he he just doesn't have that um, that presence in a room that big guys have. Um, and so I turned to that for a while, and that was fairly empty, which is where that chapter is is going to be headed. Yep. Um, and then with with Aaron, it was that jealousy of you know here's someone who who obviously 
you know, doesn't have the talent and didn't work as hard as I am and, you know, and making ex- excuses. And, and that's a big part of, of Aaron's character and being really upset instead of really happy for someone else who genuinely, for whatever reason, however that happened, found found success. And, you know, and he, that scene where he, he just goes, you know, to the bar and, and he's all smiles to Michael um, and he's got his, uh, you know, he's got an agenda and it really was fueled by McGreevy. Which is another point of that is that Aaron didn't does not understand how under McGreevy's thumb he really is, mm-hmm. how pliable he is to McGreevy, um, and I I wanted that to maybe talk to uh, readers who maybe are, are feeling perhaps the same way. And yeah. for me, it was it's artwork. For me, it's writing. Uh, but for someone else, it could be acting. It's photography. It's music. Whatever that unfulfilled creative spirit is. Um, you know, I, I don't go on vacations. I, I don't go on dinners and brunches. I, when I post on Instagram, same old Saturday night and it's me writing, (laughs) that is my Saturday night. Um, so it is certainly a sacrifice writing and, and artwork and pursuing those passions aren't, um, social. They're not glamorous. They're not, you know, typically Instagram worthy, except to kind of poke fun at yourself a little bit. But, (laughs) um, if you're really serious about, making an impact and thinking about what will outlive you and these books will, um, those are the sacrifices you simply have to make as an artist. There's no, there, there's no compromise there. Yeah. I can't at this point imagine my life without Matt and Greg and Eric and Aaron and Dahlia and all the characters that wouldn't have happened if I didn't just believe in myself and these stories and, and putting that together. And then there's the commerce side of it, which I also wanted to, uh, to address because the creative side is is wonderful, but the reality is um, to monetize what you create is probably the more difficult part of the equation. Um, none of this is cheap. Running a website, uh, running ads, being at summer festivals, publishing the, the book yourself, doing all this yourself is it's freeing and there's a lot of independence there, but you also have to bankroll it. Um, so figuring, figuring out that balance where you have a product that you truly believe in and can also sell it and risk going to a cafe and showing your books to the owner and saying, I've got these books, they take place right here in Chicago. Can I have, um, you know, can I have an author reading night? I can, you know, put out promos and posts and, you know, try to get 10 to 20 people here. And then one person shows up. And what do you do? I mean, that's also part of the artwork is is living living with that and living through that and making the best of it. Yep. And I keep coming back to this this picture, this really sweet picture of Ed Sheeran singing on a street and there's only three people in front of him. And if he got discouraged at any point, he never would have continued and become the success that he is. Yeah. So so many artists, so many people who are successful failed over and over again. And I take inspiration from those stories and say, okay, 20 people told me they were going to come tonight. One person showed up. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to center this reading around you. And I'm going to make this the best author reading you have ever been to. Yep. So the, any other author readings you ever go to in your life are going to pale in comparison <laughs> to the one I am going to give you for the next hour and a half. And you just make lemonade and you, you know, you go for it. And uh, I have a couple of readings coming up and, um, 
you, you just, you have to, it's not only, you know, authors are very, we can be uh, very hermetic and that's necessary to receive and to write and to edit and edit and edit and keep that, you know, going to, to perfect it as much as possible. Um, but you also, if this is going to go anywhere online in person, you also have to believe in the product as a commercial piece and be able to, to sell it and talk about it. Um, truly writing the novel is the easy part. Hmm. Now I know I see you on social media. Um, you are very, very, you produce a lot of like videos and stuff, which is great. And I have, you know, it's very, you have inspired me to be doing oh, videos for my artwork, uh, because I see yours all the time and I think that's great. So you're very hardworking you. in that regard. Um, in terms of putting yourself out there and asking, you gave the example of like a coffee shop and mm. that's, you know, you're, that's kind of a vulnerable position mm. that you put yourself into, but you just have to plow through it Absolutely. and ask. I mean, I know I personally encounter stuff like that all the time where I have to, um, you know, a ask galleries or ask spaces to show my artwork yeah. or even ask people to be on my podcast, you know, and, uh, and I'm not confident that they're gonna, going to stay yes all the time, yeah. but I just have to ask. And, Absolutely. you know, and that's kind of putting yourself out there and asking. And I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I agree. It, it is it is a big part of it. Um, otherwise, it's in a vacuum and it's really more of a diary. Um, and this I, I write this I write to be read. Um when Gay Bash came out, I began, so this is back in 2014, I began receiving Facebook messages from men who had survived horrible abuse, horrible bullying, and they told me how the story connected for them. And at first, I I wasn't sure how to respond to that. Initially, I said, I'm so sorry, this made you feel bad and made you cry, you know, but then what they said was no, 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 you know, I didn't, I didn't share that with you to, to make you feel bad. It's yep. because it, I, through these characters and through this story, I was able to release something that I had just tamped down so far because it was so painful. I didn't want to think about it anymore. And this was a way for me to release that. And it was more of a thank you. This is what I wanted to share with you. So that connection was so much better than, a publishing contract than you know waiting for that perfect agent by doing this and just believing that this story could connect with an audience and build an audience over time that was all the validation that i needed and that's why it's art yeah so those stories those people that you know came to you mm -hmm. and told you those stories were did you expect that or was no. that surprising I and mean, what did that feel like it it was it was surprising and at first i felt bad because i thought i i had um compounded their pain but when they, you know, went on, in, you know, in further messaging, um, and they said, no, it helped me release pain. Thank you. Okay. Um, so that's when, that's when it, it, it really felt great. And that's what also gave me um, the confidence to read those more emotional scenes from, from Gay Bash, where it is a confrontation, and I don't water it down. And I've I've had readings in, in several different venues where I've had to ask ahead of time, you know, this is a scene I want to read. This is why I want to read it. And I'm not going to censor it. Is this okay for your audience? Tell me now. Nobody has told me no. Okay. So I've, I've used that and it's, it's connected and, um, I get a lot of questions in the Q and A. I love Q and A. It's, uh, even <laughs> being a, a horror writer, that's always the scariest part of an author reading is the Q and A. Um, but I get a lot of questions, you know, did things like this really happen? And, um, 
you know, is this really fiction? And, and I have to answer quite honestly that, yes, they, they do happen um, to people who look like me and to people of color and transgender people of color more and more. Um, and we just aren't talking about this enough in the community. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up in, in Somerdale. And that's certainly where the novel's going. Tell me about where it is going and like timing. I know you're going to be doing a Summerdale 2. Is there going to be a 3 or just a 2? A 2 and a 3. Okay. And what's the timing on 2? So the second novel will come out in October of 2020. And then the final novel will be October of 2022. Okay. Now, how far along? Like, do you know 2? Do you have it all mapped out? It's two is sketched out. I this is just my way. I know exact. I've got the final the final scene of the third. I know exactly what's going to happen, and I know the showdown, and I know the characters involved, and um, it's very exciting, um, and it will be very sad. When I finished Gay Bash, I actually cried because it felt like I was saying goodbye to friends who had been with me for oh. for a couple of years. Summerdale is going to feel that way as well. Um, there may be a surprise or two in the form of eBooks that drop between now and next October. Maybe Mr. McGreevy will tell me what, what he wants. It's Mm. his, it's his show. Um, and then there will be the other spinoffs like the novellas and the things that will simply drop. So there's more of a, a world that I'm putting together through this one, book this one story of this one house in Andersonville but there's much more ahead um you know for really where I want to where I want to take the themes and I want to take the story I cannot wait so if you were to express this and I think you had mentioned like a play or something like if you could have any expression of it in any other medium what would it be hmm. like I suggested a Netflix series have you thought about like what would be the best way yeah I think I think for Summerdale the Netflix series would be amazing because of the special effects. Um, I think it would enhance the story. Sometimes we we see movies and the special effects overtake the story, and I I think it it that's not what I would want. I would want it to be something that simply enhances it um, and and builds off of it with the symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of insects. Um, that will continue. That will actually, there'll be more and more of those, Yay. which is everyone's favorite to live Yay, in a house wasps. full of wasps. And <laughs> um, yeah, there are other things are other, other things are coming. Um, Gay Bash, I think would translate well to the stage. And uh, I've been talking with a Chicago playwright about adapting Gay Bash for the stage um, here in Chicago. So that's very exciting, um, especially because it is, you know, these are Chicago stories. So to, to have them staged, to have them filmed here in Chicago would truly be a, a dream come true. Um, I truly believe in, um, you know, supporting small businesses, shopping small. Um, both books are sold at Women and Children First. Both books are sold at Unabridged Books and other independently owned bookstores in Chicago. And, um, it's another reason why I love setting my stories in, in such amazing neighborhoods. Uh, Gabesh is set in Lakeview, and that's, you know, I, I enjoy visiting. I enjoy setting my stories here. They're very inspiring. I always find something new when I come here to Andersonville. Um, so you can bet that in the second novel, when McGreevy, um, who is really based in the house, you don't really see McGreevy outside the house in the first novel. In the second novel, um, he's going to come out into the neighborhood. Ooh. And huh. he's going to have some favorite spots. And now I don't know if I can do um, in Somerdale what I did in Gay Bash. In Gay Bash, there are scenes at Roscoe's and there are scenes at Sidetrack. 
Um, I don't know that anybody necessarily would want Mr. McGreevy to be a regular customer for brunch. Because <laughs> you have to get their permission to use it. Absolutely. Oh, okay. I did that. And um, <laughs> yeah, and Jim Ludwig and, and Art Johnston were super supportive and, and they both gave me permission for Gay Bash. Um, but I don't know that I would even want to ask, um, you know, candiality if if right. Mr. McGreevy has a favorite chocolate or so, you know, something like that. Because, you know, uh, the, the scene in Chapter 4 um, they probably wouldn't like that. So um, I'll probably make some fictional businesses, which is also a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, because I think you go created a fictional gay bar on Addison. I did, yeah. a dive bar, which yeah. is actually also in Gay Bash. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, Helen of Troy. Right. Uh, the dive bar in, uh, you know, off Broadway, and it's also a dive bar up here. So I read somewhere that you wrote a book called fox and the tree stump and you still have that can you tell me about that absolutely so a childhood dream i had many um i grew up in a house that read there were books uh, and creativity was encouraged so one of the sweetest memories i have of childhood is uh of my parents reading to me as uh you know it was time to go to bed and then i always got to choose the book and they would read to me until i fell asleep and that is one of the sweetest memories of childhood and it just developed such a love of reading a love of books that continues uh, to this day. So when I was in grade school, I decided to take my, uh, you know, my turn at writing a book, and I put together this like ridiculous little story of um, of a fox who lived in a tree stump, and I was so proud of it. And I made little illustrations, and I um, taped together the loose leaf paper so it would look like a book, mm-hmm. and I gave it to my teachers, and the, and the, I, I made a special. Uh, page in the back for comments. What grade were you in? This would have been fourth or fifth grade. Oh, wow. And it had a cover. Um, and my teachers wrote me really encouraging words and stars and smiley faces. And um, I've I've kept it because it's such a touchstone for me to look back at that and think that early I wanted to be a writer. Um, then, you know, through later schooling, um, for one reason or another, uh, it just... I talked myself out of it. I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, doubt and fear crept in. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I, I turned away from it and tried to, you know, go for more of a college career path, um, which I I have. I'm very lucky. I'm very supported there. Um, and it's just, it's a great place to work. And I work with a, a wonderful team. Um, but this is definitely something that I wanted to, uh, you know, to continue pursuing. So do you have any tips, suggestions, or guidelines for people that are listening um, that maybe want to move things forward mm-hmm. or use the creative part of their mind a little bit more? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the first thing is to stop telling yourself no. You know, I, I don't have an MFA. I don't have connections. Stop. Just stop telling yourself no. That is number one. You're not, you're not going to get anywhere if you keep telling yourself no. So that's the first thing. Then think about your intention and think about what your artwork is. Um, there's so many different opportunities um, to explore your own artwork through classes. There are Facebook groups. There are affinity groups. Uh, here in Chicago, we're very lucky. There's a very rich creative community here. Yes. Um, so it's it should be fairly easy to go to a gallery, go to theater, um, see what's out there and how your work can fit in and also how your work is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also opportunities. I'm thinking 
certainly of the Lakeview East Festival of the Arts. That's a great arts festival if you're, you know, if you're into the arts. Um, Midsummerfest is a wonderful uh, summer festival I've been involved with for a couple of years. And it's great to meet readers. So it's seeing first, then seeing what's out there, and then also just believing that you also have a place and that all of those people, all of those actors, all of those writers started someplace with the same fear of rejection, and they simply kept going forward. Um, they may have differing degrees of support and encouragement. Um, and hopefully anyone in the creative area has that support. I'm very lucky um, with you know the support of my parents and my family and my friends. Um, but ultimately, it's you in front of the laptop. It's you in front of that canvas. It's you on that stage. And you mostly have to believe in yourself. So where can people learn more about what you're up to and what you are publishing and what you're producing? Absolutely. I do have a website, uh, David J. Collins. That's David J-A-Y Collins.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I've been at a few summer festivals uh, this year, including Midsummerfest. And I'll be at Market Days on August 10th and 11th in Boystown. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank this you. Was, this was really great. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast. 